This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This week, we are at the conclusion of our series in which we work through the passages of the Old Testament that the Jews and Christians came to understand as Messianic prophecies. Yes, this week we're going to look at the prophecy in Micah, the prophet, concerning the ruler who is going to come forth from Bethlehem. This is episode 270, entitled Micah's Messianic Ruler. Now, some interpreters look at this passage in Micah chapter 5, and they suggest, based on some ambiguous language, that the promised ruler has actually pre-existed in a conscious way prior to his birth from days of eternity past. So, here are some questions I would like to explore as we look at this passage in this week's episode. First, what is the relationship between this promised ruler and David and Judah, the prominent figures of the Old Testament heritage? Second, what are the key issues when looking at this ruler's ancient origins and the subject of preexistence? Number three, how does Yahweh empower this ruler with Yahweh's own privileges and prerogatives? And lastly, in what ways do the New Testament authors draw upon Micah chapter 5 in order to illustrate the birth and person of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at Micah's prophecy concerning the coming ruler from Judah. Our passage is short. It's only three verses long, so we'll read it in its entirety. Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh and the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great unto the ends of the earth. That's Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. So we see the promise of this ruler, and it is based squarely upon Bethlehem. And we can see that this ruler is going to arise and have a very great career. In fact, his greatness is going to spread beyond Bethlehem, beyond Jerusalem, but ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now the passage begins by making some very deliberate echoes and by recalling King David, both his era as the king and his place of birth. So we have the reference to Bethlehem, and we have the reference to Epatra, 
and we also have the indicator that David's kingly origins move beyond his own time, going back even further to Judah. Now, you'll recall that Judah, according to Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, that Judah is promised that the scepter will not depart from his clan. The kingship, the royal dynasty, is going to continue to descend from Judah. And ultimately, King David is a descendant of Judah. And Jesus, of course, is a descendant of David and Judah. We don't quite yet know that Jesus is the promised ruler. If we're just starting from Micah, we have to wait until the New Testament to see that Micah is used by the New Testament authors to refer to Jesus. But we can see here is that this ruler is someone that can see his own origins as going back to David, being a descendant of David, which makes sense because the king of Israel is a promise that is given by God to David and to his seed forever. And that this promise didn't begin with David. It stems all the way back hundreds of years earlier, centuries earlier, to David's forefather, that is Judah, out of whom is to come the promised king. So we have references to David and we have references to Judah. Now we can see that this ruler of Israel is someone who is quite clearly distinguished from Yahweh. The ruler is someone who, according to Yahweh, will go forth for me. He's someone that goes forth on behalf of Yahweh. He is distinguished from Yahweh. This ruler clearly is not Yahweh. In fact, we're going to see a little bit later in the passage that Yahweh is the God of this ruler. So even though this ruler is highly empowered and very important and very great, he still has a God above him, and the God of this ruler is Yahweh himself. Now, we need to look at this reference to the fact that his goings forth, the ruler's goings forth, are from long ago, and as the NASB translates it, from the days of eternity. Now, I can tell you quite clearly that the Hebrew phrase, yamei olam, does not mean days of eternity, as in forever ago. It means from a long time ago. How long ago? Well, that's the question that needs to be answered. And so the goings forth is a reference that when it comes to be used in regard to the birth of human beings, it means exactly that. It means the goings forth in reference to one's birth. But what does the context tell us about the origins of this king? We can see that his origins go all the way back to David, hundreds of years, and it goes even further than David, nearly another thousand years, back to Judah. So yes, his goings forth are from long ago, from days past gone. It's not a reference to eternity, the Hebrew phrase yamei olam, and we know this for certain. The very last verse of Micah in chapter 7 also uses this very same Hebrew phrase, yamei olam, to refer to the forefathers of the Israelite people. Now, that certainly is not a time of eternity past. That's a reference to the times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
So clearly saying that this king, who obviously is a descendant of David and a descendant of Judah, both of these figures obviously living centuries before the time of Micah, and Micah, of course, is prophesying about a ruler that's going to be born in the future, that would clearly make sense of the phrase that in Hebrew is Yomei Olam. So the Hebrew doesn't mean days of eternity past. It means days from a long time ago. And the origins are quite clear in the context to refer to the origins of this ruler descending from David and descending from Judah. There's no reference here to a conscious pre-existence of this particular person. This is someone who is a descendant of David. He's a descendant of Judah. And since David and Judah are human beings, their descendants are quite naturally also human beings, members of the human race. Now we can see in verse 3 that this child is going to be born to a woman. And this seems to be a very natural way of describing a woman having the birth of a child, but there's no reference here to any sort of incarnation of a pre-existing person. It's not Yahweh, of course, coming down and becoming a human being, becoming this particular ruler. Everything we see from this passage indicates that this person is a descendant of David and someone who is distinct from Yahweh. So there's no reference here to any sort of conscious preexistence or incarnation of some sort of divine being. We can also see from Micah chapter 5, verse 3, that this child is of the same people group as the sons of Israel. In fact, he is called one of their brethren. He's one of their brothers. It says in 5.3 that the remainder of his brethren will return. This indicates, of course, that the promised ruler is an Israelite. He's a member of the human race, meaning he's a man. He's a human being. He's not God. He's not an angel. And he's certainly not a heavenly divine being. He is qualified here in a way that you would naturally expect someone who descends from Judah and someone who descends from David to actually be. There's no surprises here. Now, what's interesting in this passage, and this fact often gets overlooked in preaching about Micah chapter 5, is that this ruler is going to bear two of the privileges and prerogatives of the God of Israel. We can see in verse 4 that he will shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh. Yahweh, as we see here, is going to empower this ruler with his own strength. Yahweh shares his strength with this particular king. This king is going to be superhuman in that sense. He's going to be highly empowered. He's going to have God's might behind him. But what we can see here is that God, who is strictly the monotheistic God of the Israelite people, is still able to empower and authorize his representative king, to share in his own strength. And not only his strength, we also see that this ruler is going to shepherd the flock in the majesty of the name of Yahweh. And it's the name of Yahweh that Yahweh seems to be sharing with this king. Yahweh sharing his name, meaning God is empowering this ruler to function as Yahweh's representative. And he represents Yahweh by ruling on Yahweh's behalf to the point where Yahweh actually shares his name with this ruler. 
in some sense, the ruler can actually be called Yahweh, but not in a way that identifies him as Yahweh. It would seek to indicate that this one is an agent who is authoritatively bearing Yahweh's name as someone who is ruling on Yahweh's behalf. So what's interesting here is that we learn a little bit about Yahweh as the one who is the god of this human ruler, but also as the one who is sharing his prerogatives and privileges with this ruler, namely his own divine name and his powerful strength. So it would not be fair to say that this ruler is a mere man or a mere human being. He is a member of the human race, but he is empowered with God's strength and God's own personal name. That is not someone that is just a mere mortal. That is a highly authorized and highly qualified ruler of God's people. And of course, we see that Yahweh is described as his God. Clearly, Yahweh is ranked above this ruler. This ruler has a God, and the God's name is Yahweh. There, of course, is no indication here that the ruler himself is Yahweh, or someone co-equal with Yahweh, or a God at the level of Yahweh's majesty. So there's a lot of interesting things that are said about this particular ruler, and it shows the messianic understanding of Jewish Christ-like expectation, namely that the promised Messiah, the promised anointed king, is someone that is going to be highly authorized and highly empowered by the God of Israel, even functioning as the agent of Yahweh's rule and reign, while remaining completely distinct from and subordinate to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So let's move to our second point, which is looking at how the New Testament uses Micah chapter 5. Now I can discern three primary places in which Micah 5 has permeated the theology of the New Testament writers. There may be some more, but these, I think, are the three most obvious. The first one is with a direct quote from our target passage, and that, of course, is in Matthew chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. So we can see here that the chief priests and the scribes have this messianic understanding that the true king of the Jews, the Christ, is going to be drawn from the data that we have in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. When Herod the king hears that there is a newborn king of the Jews, a king that obviously rivals his own power and authority, he wants to know a little bit more about him. And so 
the answer that's given to him is drawn directly from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, when they describe the qualifications of this ruler to Herod, they don't give the impression that this is a pre-existent divine being who is coming down to earth in order to take upon humanity and be the king of the Jews. There's certainly no indication that this is Yahweh himself. In fact, Herod thinks that this child is someone who is mortal that he can go and murder. If the understanding was that the newborn Jewish king is actually Yahweh himself, why would they go and murder Yahweh? That doesn't make any sense. Yahweh's immortal. Yahweh can't die. The fact that they thought that they could go kill him indicates an understanding that they thought that this child was not able to protect itself, the child was vulnerable, and of course the child was a human being who was mortal, susceptible to death. So there's no reference to pre-existence, there's no indication that they thought that this king was Yahweh, and of course this comes after Matthew spends quite a lengthy argument in Matthew chapter 1 to note that there is a genealogy to which Jesus descends from, guess what, from David and from Judah, just like we saw in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And also, there are multiple references in Matthew chapter 1 indicating the fact that Jesus has come into existence. That much is clear in Matthew 1.18 and 1.20. So everything is as we would expect based on a sound reading of Micah chapter 5, based on the other messianic expectations, and based on what Matthew has led his readers to believe on a clear, basic, self-evident reading of Matthew chapter 1. Let's move to our next passage. This is in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. So we don't have a direct reference to Micah chapter 5. We have an implicit one indicating the location of Bethlehem. We know from the passage that they actually bear the child Jesus while in Bethlehem, thus fulfilling the parameters of the prophecy there in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We also see that the newborn child is going to descend from the house and the family of David, qualifying him to be the Jewish king. And there, of course, is no indication here of any sort of preexistence, because Luke has already told us in Luke one thirty-five that the child to be born will be the son of God, not God himself, but the Son of God, based squarely upon the Holy Spirit's miraculous creative power. That's Luke 1.35. Now the last reference occurs at the point of a division between Jesus and a variety of the neutral listeners to his messages. I say they're neutral because they're not considered to be evil and wanting to put him to death, so they kind of have a neutral position. But in John chapter 7, verse 42, 
we can see that the crowds who hold a neutral position, at least in this passage, discuss the Christ and his origins by drawing on Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They say, in John 7, 42, that has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? That's John 7, verse 42. So we could see that the Jews are interpreting Micah chapter 5, verse 2 quite clearly to refer the promised ruler to actually be the Christ. And they know that the Christ is someone who is a descendant of David, meaning he's a lineal, biological son descending from David, his forefather. They're not expecting the second person of the Trinity to come down and to be the Christ. They're certainly not expecting a divine being, a heavenly angel, or anything like that. They expect a human descendant from David, who is to be the Christ, who is to be God's anointed Jewish king. And clearly they are drawing their understanding of the role and the origins of the Messiah from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So there we can see Micah 5, 2 in its original context, and we can see how it was interpreted by at least three New Testament authors that use the passage to describe not only the role of the Messiah, but his origins and his birth located in Bethlehem. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look at our upcoming debate, which is going to be this coming Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And we're going to discuss in our next episode the opening statements of the debate. And we're going to talk a little bit about our strategy as to why we wrote our opening statement as we did. I can tell you we've already written our opening statement. We've already tested it and practiced it. And I'll tell you it is great and excellent. And I cannot wait for you to be able to hear it. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on iTunes and YouTube, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation to help keep the podcast online, you can check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. Again, I want people to Beware of the debate that we're having this coming Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern on the Gospel Truths YouTube page. And you can actually participate in the debate in the live Q&A that's going to take place after the closing statements are offered. So it's 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on April 2nd, 2023. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I'm Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.